Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Romans in the New Testament in chapter number 12. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could turn in that Bible to page 126, and you'd be at Romans chapter 12. In Romans 12, in particular in verse 2, there is a pivotal New Testament principle that I want us to look at that is really a backdrop to our new study that we are going to be launching today. It's a principle that hits us right where we live. Paul says to the believers there in Romans 12 too, he says, do not be conformed to this world. This is a challenge that he gives to us not to be shaped by this world. Some translators put it, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Others have said, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. And this is a constant pressure that we face. In fact, this command here could be given this way, stop being conformed to this world. That is an easy tendency. And as believers, we are called to penetrate the society in which we live, right? We are called to shine as light in this world. And if we're going to do that, that involves contact with the world. That means we have to have relationships with the people in the world. But as followers of Jesus, we're not to become isolated or cloistered from the sinful world. We can't do that and still have contact. But we need to be remaining aware and alert and intentional that while we are in contact with the world, that we're not molded by the world, we're not compromised by the world, we're not shaped by the values of society. In other words, what we are to do, as he goes on to say in verse 2, we are to be rather transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we get our minds transformed by exposure to an alignment with the Word of God. We're launching a new study today that we have entitled Designer's Fashion. It's from the book of Titus, subtitled, Adorning the Doctrine of God in Every Respect. And we've looked at this principle out of Romans 12 because I believe this principle of not being shaped by the world and squeezed into its mold is the very backdrop for the book of Titus. What we're going to do today is have an orientation to the book of Titus. Many people have never been in the book of Titus or never heard anyone speak from the book of Titus. But we have a fourfold plan of what we're going to look at today. First of all, we're going to look at this tendency, this tendency to be squeezed by the world into its mold. Then we're going to look at the background of the book of Titus. Then we're going to look at the thrust and the themes of the book of Titus. And then the fourth thing we'll take a look at is the introduction to the book of Titus, which is found in the first four verses of Titus. So the very thing we want to do to start off with is we want to go a little deeper in this idea of the tendency that we have to be shaped by the world. It was a tendency that those in Titus' day had to deal with, and obviously we have to deal with it in our day also. Now again, I remind you of what our calling is as followers of Jesus. We are to penetrate the world. 
We're to relate to the world. We're to shine as light in the world. But at the same time, we're not to be shaped by the world. We're not to let the world squeeze us into its mold. We're not to be copying the customs and the behavior of the world. We need to be very aware and alert and intentional about the tension that this brings of being in the world but not allowing the world to shape us. See, the world system promotes and practices a lot of different things. The world system promotes materialism. This is all around us even today. It was true in Titus's day. The world is out there saying that it's stuff that is the secret to success. If you can just get more money, if you can just have more things, then you will be happy. And that pressure to embrace that is always on us. The world system exports what I like to call immoralism. You know, an immoralist is someone who departs from the standards. And the world is always exporting our way immoralism. The world is down on marriage, high on cohabitation. The world is out there openly endorsing homosexual behavior, saying what everyone needs to do is approve such behavior. The world is out there lying, cheating, and stealing. I don't know if you ever just think about it in the news, but there is so much about people lying and cheating and stealing in news stories. In fact, I sometimes get worn out just following the news stories. And sometimes it's lying, cheating, and stealing in school. Sometimes it's lying, cheating, and stealing in business. We've heard plenty of that. Sometimes it's lying, cheating, and stealing in politics. But that's part of the world system, and we know there's a pressure to embrace those kinds of things. The world promotes and practices what we could call selfism. Selfism is all about my rights, my feelings. It's all about looking out for number one. And when you're looking out for number one, what happens? There's a self-focus to a person's life, and there's insensitivity to other people. Selfism is expressed by what we're concerned about is how does it make me feel rather than what is the right thing to do. And selfism, this idea of how does it make me feel rather than what is right, begins to infect our marriages and our relationships, and it infects business, and it infects politics. There's always this pressure coming at us to embrace the values of the world system. Part of what grows out of selfism is what we might call subjectivism. And the world is very into subjectivism. There's no objective truth out there. There's no objective standards out there. Any truth is truth. The idea is just, it's whatever you think is right. Whatever you think is right. Whatever is right is what you think is good for me. That's what the world keeps talking about, and that is beginning to infiltrate and infect the believing community. You know, I'm a little older. I've been around for a while, and I've seen this idea of subjectivism growing inside the church of Jesus Christ. I've seen more and more people playing fast and loose 
with Scripture than I ever have before. It seems, you know, out there in the spiritual world, there's this growing mentality that sort of looks at truth and values like a flea market bazaar. You ever been to one of those flea market bazaars? And there's all these tables out there, right? And you walk by and you say, whatever fancies my interest, that's what I grab a little of this and a little of that. Whatever the concepts and values are that I think are cool, that's what I embrace. I'm going to choose what intrigues me, what attracts me. Because you see, it's all about what I want, all about what I want. There seems to be that mentality out there in the spiritual world that we're sort of in some sort of a flea market bazaar environment. But that's not what the Bible teaches. See, the Bible teaches that we have been called to a kingdom, that as followers of Jesus, we've been incorporated into a kingdom. It's not about my preferences and choices. It's not about Bruce's preferences and choices. It's not about your preferences and choices. It's about his will and his desires. See, it's not about some endless array of alternatives and options and self-choices when it comes to values. What it's really a matter of is the will of the sovereign king. Is that not right? I mean, can I get a little amen on that one? See, that's what's important. That's what's vital. But there's this pressure that we have. See, there's this tendency for us to begin to embrace materialism and to embrace immoralism and embrace selfism and embrace subjectivism. And what God says is stop allowing yourself to be shaped by the world. Stop being squeezed into its mold. Don't copy. Stop copying the behavior and the customs of the world. Now, as we go through that tendency, it's a very long introduction to the issue, I believe, behind the book of Titus. It is the backdrop to the book of Titus. And so the second thing, having looked a little more closely at this tendency, we want to look at the background of the book of Titus. If you haven't already turned there, I would encourage you to turn to Titus. Uh, it's hiding behind 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and 1st and 2nd Timothy. And if you don't have a Bible, you're using one here, it would be on page 167. But here's the background to the book of Titus. It involves really three simple dimensions. It is a letter from Paul to an individual called Titus, whose location was at Crete. As simple as I can make it. A letter from Paul to Titus, who was at Crete. So let's take a look at those things a little more closely. We learn that, uh, which is the normal way of beginning a letter, that this is a letter that comes from Paul. Now, I want to remind you contextually, giving you a feel for these things, of what's going on here. Paul is now a grizzled veteran of ministry. He has been a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ for more than 30 years by the time he writes this book. Paul was a seasoned individual He'd been through all the ups and the downs of ministry and life. He's an individual who knew what it was like to have prosperity in his life. He knew what it was like to have poverty in his life. He had suffered in following Jesus Christ. In fact, he had marks on his body to prove it. Paul, by the time he writes this letter to Titus, is a veteran 
of three gigantic missionary journeys. During those journeys, he'd been evangelizing and sharing the message of Christ, and thousands had turned to Christ as their rescuer from sin and judgment. Over those long journeys, he had strengthened countless disciples in their walk with Jesus Christ. And all of those time, all of those decades, Paul had been an eyewitness of things. He had watched how the world system, even with believers, could begin to squeeze us into its mold. He had observed the dangers of false teachers. I find it interesting. If you ever look in the New Testament, there are so many warnings about the dangers of false teachers, and I rarely hear anybody talking about that today. And yet, false teaching is just as much a danger today as it was then. He was an eyewitness. He'd watched people come to Christ, and some of them even walk away from their life with Christ. He's a seasoned veteran of the spiritual wars, and and over those decades, he'd served alongside a great array of co-leaders. You would recognize the names, Timothy, and Barnabas, and Luke, and Silas, and John Mark, and yes, a young man by the name of Titus. Through all of this time and all of this ministry, Paul had developed a very deep conviction. And that was, it was very important for believers to understand the importance of developing godly character in their life. And there would be godly character in the church of Jesus Christ. So you have Paul, that grizzled veteran who is writing a letter to Titus. Now if you look at verse 4, He addresses this letter to Titus, and he describes Titus as my true child in a common faith. If you go and you study a little bit about Titus, you would realize he is a Gentile follower of Jesus Christ. And yet he had this relationship with Paul. Paul calls him my true child. It doesn't mean that he was his physical child. But much like Paul viewed the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 4.15, he said to them, I became your spiritual father through the gospel. And he had the same kind of relationship with Titus. He'd become the spiritual father through the gospel of Jesus Christ to Titus. And Titus had been with Paul for a long time. We know that he traveled with Paul to Jerusalem. We learn that from Galatians chapter 2. And as you track Titus through, it's really interesting. We we know that he had a strong faith because Titus became a troubleshooter for the Apostle Paul. You know, on, on his third missionary journey, which happened a decade before the book of Titus is written, Paul needed to send somebody to the church at Corinth. You know anything about the church of Corinth? There was no church more messed up and upside down in all of the New Testament than the church of Corinth. You don't send your least reliable guy to Corinth. You pick out the one that you can rely on the most, and that's exactly who he sent to Corinth. Titus, we learn that from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and chapter 8. He had become Paul's troubleshooter, his reliable troubleshooter. And so he not only sent him to Corinth, but we learn here that he sends him to Crete. Now, we're going to see Crete was a very difficult environment. 
And Paul needed to have somebody represent him in Crete. He said, you know what? It's going to be Titus. In fact, we learn later on, after the book of Titus is written from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, it says there that I sent Titus to Dalmatia. You can go and study it. Dalmatia was another difficult region. So the difficult duty that Paul had, he handed off to this guy named Titus. So you have Paul writing a letter to Titus, and Titus is at Crete. Now let's take a little closer look at that. Crete is an island in the Mediterranean. And if you look at that map that you had before you, you have Israel uh, to the right, you have Asia Minor to the north, you have Greece to the northwest. And in the Mediterranean, there were two major islands. The one that's closest to Israel is the island of Cyprus. Uh, the island that is just south of Greece is the island of Crete. It is an island that was 156 miles long, and depending on where you were, either 35 miles wide or 7 miles wide. And we believe, most likely, that the gospel first came to the island of Crete after the day of Pentecost. You remember what happened on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? Remember all these people who came for the festival of Pentecost from all these various backgrounds and people groups? And, and when the Holy Spirit came, the gift of languages was given, and everyone heard God speaking in their native language. And we learn from verse 11 of Acts 2 that some of who heard their language were Cretans, people from the Isle of Crete. Now, we know that Paul was briefly by the Isle of Crete in Acts chapter 27. He's on his way to his first Roman imprisonment. And you know what happens in Acts 27? Anyone remember? What happens in Acts 27 is that there is a shipwreck that takes place. And that shipwreck took place off the southern coast of Crete, just to the west of a town in Crete called Fair Havens. And while Paul didn't spend any time there, I believe he looked upon that island and was thinking, you know, when I get a shot, I'm going, I'm going there. I'm going to the Isle of Crete. And so it was likely after his first imprisonment in Rome, which would be, by the way, after Acts chapter 28, you realize the church goes on after Acts chapter 28. And it was at that time we believe that he would have come to the Isle of Crete and he evangelized the Isle of Crete. And there was a new core of believers who came to faith. And there was churches that needed to be birthed. And we learn from verse 5 of chapter 1 that Titus had been with Paul. When Paul had to move on to other ministry, he said to Titus, his troubleshooter, his reliable troubleshooter, I'm going to have you stay here. And I want you to set in order what remains to be set in order for these churches. And I want you to appoint elders in every city. That was Paul's way of doing things. You know, he evangelized an area, and then he would come back in the area, and he would get the churches organized. And he said, I've got to move on, but you know what, Titus, this is a tough place. I want you to be the one to stay and get all these things launched on the right foot. Now, Crete is an island. 
It's interesting, it had a lar- it's a long way away from Israel, but it had a large population of Jews on it. And we're going to see in chapter 1, verse 14, that that begins to cause a little bit of a problem. Because it was an island, it had a very heavy worldly influence about it. It's an island in the Mediterranean, so there were ports all over the island. And what would happen in all of those ports is that ships from cultures all over the Mediterranean world in every direction would end up at Crete. And when you have ships from cultures all over the world, you would have individuals from those cultures who would get involved in those port cities. And because you have all those different cultures, guess what? On the Isle of Crete, subjectivism ruled the day. Because you had all these people from all these different backgrounds, and everyone had their own standards. And right and wrong on Crete depended on the situation. And uh, cutting corners was wrong only if you got caught. May that sound kind of vaguely familiar today. Other interesting thing about the island of Crete, it was, it was a training center for Roman soldiers. They had several military bases there, and, and soldiers would come in to train on the island of Crete. Now, when you take sailors and you take soldiers, guess what you end up with? A rather coarse environment. You can imagine all the things that goes with soldiers and sailors. And the people of Crete were known as being rude and unrefined and boorish and brutish. Just a crude culture. Again, you know, I've been around for a little while, a few decades, and I have to say this about the United States of America, what I've observed We are becoming more crude by the week. Well, that's the kind of environment that Titus found himself in. We know that the Isle of Crete was famous for its wine and its drinking and its drunkenness. I mean, you've got sailors and soldiers everywhere. In fact, there have been some archaeological digs, and, and in the ancient ruins, they have found large numbers of wine cups and beer mugs. This was Crete. There was a guy by the name of Epimenides, and Epimenides, you might say, who's Epimenides? Well, he was considered to be one of the seven wise men of the ancient world. This is the way he described Crete. He said that Crete lacks wild beasts. It was an island that didn't have a lot of wild-type animals on it, but he said the, the lack of wild beasts on the island of Crete is made up for by the inhabitants. That's the kind of place Crete was. Materialism was incredibly prominent on the Isle of Crete. Plutarch, the writer, said this, Cretans are devoted to riches as bees to honeycombs. That's the kind of world this was. And on the island of Crete, selfism was rampant. See, the culture was all about me. Just all about me. is a very me culture. And because it was all about me, the culture was actually known for being quite lazy. Work was to be avoided as much as possible. It's interesting how some people even in our day think that way. Because selfism was rampant, gluttony was common. Some have described those on Crete as more lovers of pleasure than lovers of knowledge. In parts of the Roman Empire, people were really into knowledge. On Crete, they were much more lovers of pleasure. 
And when it came to lying and cheating and stealing, nobody was more accomplished at that than the people of Crete. They were notorious for their deceitfulness. They were notorious for their untruthfulness. In fact, this phrase arose to act the Cretan. It meant to play the liar. And then they had a phrase, to play the Cretan with a Cretan, which meant to out-trick a trickster. That's the kind of world that Titus found himself in, a culture very much conformed to and shaped and squeezed into the mold of the world. And there was pressure among these believers, many of them young believers, to embrace those same values. And it was vital that they instead be transformed by the renewing of their minds. Now, the third thing we said we were going to look at today is not only the tendency of the background, but the thrust of the book and the themes of the book. And in order to see the thrust displayed, I'd like us to turn to chapter 2 and verse 10. We have here what I consider to be the key verse of the book, really the core idea of the book. And he talks in verse 10 about not pilfering and showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. These are directives given by Paul to Titus to teach the church. And so the they there in verse 10 is a reference to the believers. It's a reference to us. And it's saying that the believers, we are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Now, that word that is translated adorn is a very colorful one. It is the word in the original language, kosmeo, K-O-S-M-E-O. And kosmeo meant to arrange something in a way that would set off its full beauty. We get our word cosmetics from this word. We are to adorn. We are to make attractive. We are to make look good. We are to bring the beauty out of the doctrine of the God our Savior in every respect. We are to ennoble the doctrine of God. Ennoble means to display something as noble. We are to magnify. We are to dignify the doctrine of of God our Savior in every respect. Thus we have, as the subtitle of the book, we called it Designer's Fashion, Adorning the Doctrine of God in Every Respect. We could have subtitled it Counteracting a Self-Centered Culture. We could have subtitled it How to Live for Christ in a Self-Focused World. But there's an imagery here of what we're called to do in this world, and that is to adorn the doctrine of God in every respect. Now, I've, I've worked with a lot of New Testament letters before, and Titus is a little hard to outline. You have this clear thrust, but what's interesting is that there's these themes that run through the book that just keep threading their way through, and I want to look at those themes. Let's look at those themes. Part of what was happening to the church there on Crete was they were losing sight of the importance of doctrine. And part of the thrust of the message that Paul wanted Titus to convey to them is to be solid in your thinking. 
And, and we see that in chapter 1 and verse 1 and verse 9 and verse 14. And we see it in chapter 2 and verse 1 and verse 7 and verse 15. There's another theme that runs through the book, and that is this. Part of their issue was they were minimizing the priority of godly character, godly character in individuals and godly character in the church. And part of the thrust of the message that Paul wanted Titus to convey is keep godly living a priority. We see that in chapter 1, uh, verse 1, verses 5 to 9, chapter 2, verses 2 to 6, verse 8, verses 9 to 14, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And then there was this third theme that we see appearing in the book, and part of the issue was For those who are following Christ here on Crete, they were living in a fog of selfishness. Part of the message that Paul wanted Titus to convey is be passionate as individuals in a church in doing good. We see that in chapter 2, verse 7, and verse 14, and chapter 3, verse 1, and verse 8, and verse 14. In other words, we're being called to adorn and bring out the beauty of Christ. This is the way I like to look at it to bring out the beauty of Christ in our head and in our heart and in our hands. We bring out the beauty of Christ in our head when we embrace doctrine, which is a misunderstood word. It just means teaching, the teaching of truth. We bring out the beauty of Christ in our heart when we are developing character. And we bring out the beauty of Christ in our hands by doing good things deeds to other people. While these themes run through, we could say that the focus in chapter 1 is adorning the doctrine of God in church. The focus in chapter 2 is adorning the doctrine of God in our personal life. And the focus in chapter 3 is adorning the doctrine of God in society. Now, we've, we've run through all of that. I want to take a few moments just to look at the introductory comments that Paul makes in Titus in verses 1 to 4. Let me just read through those real quickly. It says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Now, we don't have time. We could spend a whole time on these verses. There's a lot of theology tucked in here. But I just want to look at a couple of phrases that come out. It's interesting how Paul describes himself in the first verse or so. Did Titus need to hear that from Paul? He didn't need to hear that from Paul. He knew all that. He'd been working with Paul for a long time. But the church needed to hear that. It's interesting that Paul describes himself as a bondservant of God. Literally, it just means a slave of God. He's saying, look, I'm a slave to the king of of the universe. And what I'm concerned about is not my plan, but his plan. I always appreciate Paul showing up because Paul tells us that God can transform and use anyone, right? I mean, you remember that that Paul was a murderer and Paul was a torturer 
not only of men, but a torture of women. And yet when Jesus Christ got a hold of his life, he transformed it. There's hope for you. There's hope for me. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's the, an envoy, a personal representative of Christ. And he goes on to talk about for the faith of those chosen of God. That's a reference to us as believers. We're chosen of God. You know, we, a person experiences a relationship with the living God when we make the choice to trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to pay for our sin and judgment. But we're chosen of God. See, behind that choice is a prior choice that God made. Jesus told the disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And the same thing is true for you if you're a follower of Christ and for me. There's a mystery in how all of this works. But what it's basically saying is ultimately our destiny is in his hands. You know, people run around and they like to imagine, I'm the captain of my soul. The truth is that God is the initiator. God is the catalyzer. God is the true captain. And this truth we need to be reminded of because it spawns humility in our life. And if you battle arrogance and pride, it will utterly crush us to realize that we are chosen of God. He goes on there in, in that first verse to talk about the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. I like the way the New Living Translation does it here. Paul said, I was sent to teach them to know the truth, which shows them how to live godly lives. Did you get the idea? It's the truth that shows us how to live godly lives. The truth points to godliness. It's the truth that tells us how we're to live our life. Not what the world says, but what God says. And it's the knowledge of truth. Doctrine, when embraced, leads to a God-honoring lifestyle. He goes on in verse 2 to talk about the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. There's a little gem hiding there in the verse. I just want you to see. You see that phrase where it says, God cannot lie? That little term, cannot lie, is one word in the original language, and this is the only time in all of the New Testament it comes up. It's a word, apsuedus, A-P-S-E-U, D-E-S. We get the word pseudo from it. If you take the A off of that word, you'll see pseudo in it. You know a pseudonym, that's a false or fictitious name, or pseudoscience, that's fake science. Well, what he's saying is when it comes to the hope and the promise of eternal life, God is a pseudo He's as far away from being deceptive and untrustworthy as anyone could ever be. And so we can count on his promise. Our hope is not whimsical. It's not wishful thinking. It's certain because God promised it, and God is a pseudo. God doesn't lie. And then he goes on to give that familiar greeting in uh, verse 4. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. We studied grace not too long ago. Remember, grace is God's generous, undeserved goodness. 
And he's really saying to the believers, grace to you now. It's not just something that happened in the past. There's an ongoing need for grace. If we're going to endure difficulty, if we're going to resist being shaped by the world, if we're going to forgive other people, if we're going to live for his glory daily, we need that grace. And the peace is that settled confidence that comes to us that transcends external circumstances. And both of those men and women are needed for me to adorn the doctrine of God in every respect. I just got to let you know, I am pumped as an individual to spend some time in Titus over these next number of weeks. And I am pumped that we have the opportunity as a church family to do that very thing. Over the next number of weeks, our focus is going to be on growing in doctrine. Our aim is going to be on developing character. Our plan is going to be learning more about touching others through deeds. Now, I don't know where all of you are coming from. I don't know all of you. But maybe you walked in here today and you have been living your life in the spiritual realm like it was sort of a flea market bazaar. And you could just walk through and pick and choose what you might want. It's all about what you want and what intrigues you. And I'm going to take a little of this from over here. And what attracts you, I'll take a little of that. Maybe you've been doing that and you have found that the things that you've picked up aren't really satisfying you and they're leaving you empty. See, when we have no relationship with the living God, you know what we really are? We're just adrift on the ocean. And the living God designed you, he designed me to have a personal relationship with him. And rest for our inner soul can only be found in that relationship with him. And that relationship begins when an individual turns to embrace by faith that Jesus Christ died to be their rescuer and deliver you from death and judgment. And you can do that very thing. It's a transaction that happens between you and God you could do that right now. Let's pray together. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to just intersect with a living book like the Bible, and in particular, the book of Titus. And we would pray that you would show us as we go through this over the weeks, maybe where we've been allowing ourselves to be squeezed in the mold of the world, that you would show us how we need to grow in doctrine, that you would show us more about how we need to, by your power, be developing character in our life, and that we would understand that it's very vital that we be a people, individuals, who are touching others with good deeds. And for everyone who's listening right now who doesn't know the person of Christ, maybe they've tried all kinds of little tastes here and there of other things, may they realize that the living God is none other than the person of Jesus Christ. And he is more than enough for everyone. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.